What I've loved about working with entrepreneurs in terms of like, okay, now we're going to start investing your money. Here's things we're thinking about in terms of asset classes is our client base, which is largely those people and largely first generation entrepreneurs, they understand risk. And so if you understand risk, then, then, you know, many of them can run circles around me in terms of what we're talking about investing <laughs> their money in and, and they, they, they get it and yeah. they're, and every, you know, they may fall at a different point on the spectrum in terms of how much risk they want to take now. But at the end of the day, what we're doing is way less risky than what they did before. Cause they had all their eggs in one basket, but they, but they controlled it. Yeah. And so, you know, there's, there's those, those dynamics that, that you got to think about, but it, it's, it's a lot of fun. Everybody's different, but uh, certainly it's a big, big life change. Hello everyone. My name is Chris Powers and I want to thank you so much for joining me today on the Fort podcast. This show is an open-ended discussion and journey covering real estate, business, entrepreneurship, and investing. I would love to hear from you by tweeting me at Fort Worth Chris on Twitter. And if you've enjoyed this show, I would be super grateful if you would follow it on Apple, Spotify, or whatever platform you're listening on. And if on Apple, it would mean a lot if you'd leave a rating or review. And last but not least, you can check all these episodes out on YouTube. So thank you again for joining me and enjoy the show. Chris. Welcome to the show, my man. Thanks for having me. Yeah. For everybody listening, Chris and I have known each other almost a decade, but in the last couple of years, I think we've gotten close again. Uh, we, we, we chat pretty often. We share ideas. Um, and Chris has, you know, been a wealth of information for me and, and really helped me out the last year and a lot of things I've been dealing with. So without further ado, welcome to the show. And let's just start with you came from um, the hedge fund industry before getting into uh, what you're doing now at True North. Let's just talk about those first 10 years, um, working at Q Investments here in Fort Worth, kind of how that kind of shaped and formed kind of your career. Yeah, thanks. So I, I was fortunate enough to get a an entry-level job at Q. I started interning there senior year of college, uh, worked in the back office for the first year I was there, which... Uh, for those of people who are not familiar with the terms, back office is accounting and and reporting and that kind of stuff. Spent uh, another year on the risk team and then spent about four years on the trading desk. When I started, Q managed about a billion dollars in assets and had 20, 25 people. So in Fort Worth in 2000, that was a good size firm and had a great reputation. And, and I ended up staying 11 years uh, when I left, it was about two and a half billion in assets and about 65 people. And so for me, it was interesting. And it's interesting in hindsight to think that I spent 11 years learning how really smart people made money in an institutional quality way, doing anything other than buying stocks and watching them go up, which yeah. is kind of the opposite of your traditional, you know, background of someone who's in wealth management. Right. What do you mean by that? So w was that part of the strategy, like differentiated y'all from other hedge funds or that's just what hedge funds do? Yeah, it was at the time there was a, there was a, uh, a lot of, uh, there were a lot of funds that were what you'd call market neutral or, or something along those lines. And it's less common now because a lot of these strategies just aren't as aren't as lucrative anymore. But when I started at Q uh, in 1999, it was like 
70% of what the firm did was convertible arbitrage, which is a super kind of niche strategy uh, that back back then was was pretty lucrative. Uh, the other 30% was merger arbitrage. So these were strategies that theoretically don't correlate with the market. And uh, Q had generated north of 20% annual returns for the previous six or so years when I started. And uh, we morphed over time as other strategies presented themselves or as market opportunities presented themselves and just did other things. But the, but the philosophy was never... And we're going to buy these stocks and watch them go up. Right. Q's investors, which were largely uh, institutional, uh, big endowments, uh, foundations, et cetera, pensions, were looking for uncorrelated returns. And that's so that's what we did. Yep. And um, it morphed. We, we did a lot of distressed debt in early 2000s. We bought a big ABA, aviation uh, leasing portfolio, l- literally owning... Uh, commercial airplanes, 757s, 737s, et cetera. Uh, that was all post-September 11th when there was a lot of distress in the in the aviation industry. Uh, largely sold that entire portfolio by 06. And then we're doing different you know, things, buying, you know, doing private equity, uh, other, you know, other activist kind of campaigns in the public markets, et cetera. And, and we're going to get into this, like, as to where your career is today around capital allocation and you know, how you underwrite sponsors. But when you're in the hedge fund world, you know, a lot of businesses, you kind of come up with one idea and you execute on it. Like for us at Fort, we buy industrial buildings and that's what we're doing. But in the hedge fund industry, you kind of have these ideas and you're kind of executing on them. And you're like, when you watch even that show Billions, which is probably something a lot of people can relate to, it's all about this like idea. And they host these dinners where it's like, what's the next idea? But when you're in that, you know, the 65 of y'all, which obviously not everybody was on ideas, like how do ideas um, kind of make their way to the the surface and how often sh- are people thinking about new ideas? Because it's this industry where it, you're just kind of as good until you find the next like arbitrage or edge. Right. No, that's right. So our structure was that we had five or so of us on the trading desk at okay. any given time and maybe uh, 10 or so that made up the the research team and so ideas would be generated either directly by the principal of the firm uh, or by the trading desk or by the research team and and depending on how that percolated then the research team was typically the group that was handling the heavy lifting on all of the work, doing credit work on these names or the, the research on whether a merger was going to go through or that type of thing. The trading desk was the eyes and ears to the market. Yeah. So that's that's where I was for a, a, you know, a number of those years. Just kind of one more on that. Once an idea, though, was generated, do you stay in that for years, months? Like, when is it time for like the next idea? And how many ideas can you really be executing on at any one point in time? Yeah, it was. It seems like a huge number to me now, but back in the original, you know, early days, kind of early two thousands when I was there, we would have anywhere from sixty to one hundred and fifty positions at any given time, and uh, convertible. You know, the convertible our portfolio was. You're long a convertible bond. You're short the stock. You trade the stock around as it goes up or down, and and you can capture this this volatility 
And um, that might've been, you know, 30 or 40 names. And we weren't necessarily doing deep credit work on those. What that was more, that was more trading type, type work. So later, as we were doing more distressed debt investing, call it, you know, 2001, 2002, and then especially after, after, you know, kind of during and after great financial crisis, uh, these are positions that you might end up having for years and, and a tremendous amount of work goes into it on the front end. And and you may be looking at a name. I say you, I mean, I really mean the, the, uh, the research team or the credit team, as we called it, they might spend months looking at something and we had a number of positions at Q over the years that were, you know, nine figure positions that were very large that Q ended up in for, uh, you know, three to five years. Yep. And so, um, where the bulk of the money was made over the years was on very large positions yep. and the principal, um, had a real knack for backing up the truck when he saw a, a really, you know, a really attractive opportunity and would take, you know, or make a really aggressive bet. And, the, and more often than not, it paid off really handsomely. Yeah. And, and, and okay, last one on hedge fund, and then we're going to kind of move, but like when you were talking about, and, and this could be for anything, and I'm not necessarily speaking just to how Q did it, but when I, it's just cool to me how these ideas are executed on, okay, 9-11 happens. Clearly there's like distress in the aviation industry. Like anybody that has semi of a brain would be like, oh, there's an opportunity in aviation. The market is down. Um, but then it's all about like, one, you have to execute on it. You have to find out where within aviation there's the right spots to play. So I just imagine this world where like, you know, again, I always go back to the billions episode, but it's like, okay, we're, we need to get in aviation. They like, do they just hand that over to the credit team? And they're like, come back to me in a couple of weeks with like the best ways to get into this. Right. Or is it a lot more detailed than that from the start? And that's kind of the way it started. The way I remember it is uh, the principal of the firm, Jeff, literally brought a Newsweek article into the office and there was a picture of all these planes mothballed out in the Mojave Desert uh, at the end of 01 or beginning of 02. And, and his presumption was, look, I don't know exactly what the opportunity is here, but when you see a dislocation of this size, there is an opportunity. So go find it. And a credit team does a ton of work. Originally, uh, the trading desk was doing a lot of work because you could buy uh, bonds or, or loans effectively that were backed, you know, by airlines, uh, there was unsecured airline debt, and then you can go one level up from that, and there was secured debt that had specific assets it was tied to, and those are called double ATCs. And then there was even more secured debt that's a ETC that that had specific airplanes that that it was tied to. And and at the end of the day, we went all the way up the capital structure and then decided that the best thing to do was actually to go buy the airplanes themselves. Yeah. And then that brought all kinds of new complications. And this took nine months or so if if um if i'm remembering correctly this was 20 years ago so it's yeah. been a while but uh it was um at the end of 02 we closed on the first transaction and and that was buying a bunch of uh 757s from northwest airlines and all the airlines were super distressed at the time and pre-september 11th they owned their own planes so the the business model in the aviation industry has completely changed since then but 
by the time we bought those, we had a whole team in place. We yeah. bought the, um, you know, there, there was a guy that was head of leasing for, for one of the airlines that we brought in and an, another group. And, and it was a, it was a, you know, real team, even by the time we closed the first transaction and it ended up being a, a billion dollars worth of planes, yeah. you know, four years later. That's cool. All right. So, uh, year 11 comes around and you get a call from a headhunter. Um, let's just talk about what happened after the call from that headhunter. Yeah, it's funny. So we had used a, um, I, I was running the recruiting operations for Q at the time, among other things. And a headhunter that we had used to fill the CEO of a local bank here in Fort Worth uh, called me and uh, they were talking about you know working with this investment bank in Fort Worth and they wanted to know if I'd serve as a reference. And I said, yeah, sure. And so I got a call from Don Woodard at, at Western uh, who runs Western Commerce Group and is the founder. And uh, this was a Friday afternoon. I remember it well. And Don was asking about using this headhunter and what my experience was and how good they were and all that. And he was trying to find somebody to run this little registered investment advisor that Western owned, which was uh, one part of, of their business. Their main business is M&A advisory, you know, investment banking. But they had a $100 million RIA. It was a, basically a little multifamily office with, with 10 clients that made up most of the money. And they needed somebody to manage that. And uh, I talked to him and told him everything I knew about the, you know, that particular headhunter and thought that, it, you know, he, he would probably, you know, should hire them. They could do a good job. They could, they could find somebody. And I remember going home to my wife and, and telling her, Hey, uh, this is kind of interesting conversation today. This, this guy I never even heard of this company I'd never heard of, but he's looking for somebody to run this specific business. And it was kind of interesting. And she immediately just told me, well, why don't you call him back? You could do that. You know, is that you should, you should look at that. And, uh, I'd never looked for a job in 11 years. And I called him back on Monday and I said, Hey, um, everything I told you on Friday stands, but by the way, I, I might be interested in that. Uh, if, if you're interested in talking to me, I'd be interested in talking to you. I said, but I don't have a, I don't have a resume. I just wanted you to know that. And I'll never forget. He said, well, I think resumes are a huge ass whip anyway. <laughs> so come up to the office tomorrow and we'll chat. And, uh, and I, 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 maybe I knew right then that that was my guy. Yeah. Well, you said something there. Um, you know, you're like, and, we, and we've talked about this, but your wife was like one of the people that kind of pushed you and supported you to do it. And, uh, a common thread on a lot of these episodes is, um, it's really hard to build a great career. It's really hard to do anything, um, without a supportive spouse. Uh, would you say that had you not come home that night, um, and your wife hadn't pushed you there, like maybe it wouldn't have registered as much and maybe speak just a little more to the, the, um, the impact having your spouse has had on your career. Yeah. I think in that case, I'm probably, I probably would have gotten around there, you know, maybe anyway, hopefully. Yeah. Uh, but I will say in general, I just, it, it just, I could not overstate how important it has been for me personally. And, uh, my wife and I started dating when I was 16 and she oh, wow. was 15 <laughs> and we're 44 and 43 now. So it's literally, you know, most of our lives we've been together. 
she's managed the checking account since the day we got married and does a lot better job than I ever would. <laughs> and so like, we're just, we're, we're partners, I believe in the true sense of the word. And there's not a right or wrong way for things to work, uh, you know, marriage wise or finances or, or whatever. But for us, it has, it has been great. And, um, and you know, anything I've been able to accomplish, uh, she had probably a greater than 50% role in, let's put it that way. That's awesome, man. Well, congrats. Um, that's huge. All right. So you, you moved to Western and, and that you kind of work in a Western capacity, but I want to get to, you know, what you're doing today at True North. So let's just talk a little bit about getting to Western, what those preceding years look like, and then how that's turned into your current role with True North. Sure. So I uh, started at Western February of 11. Um, it was a, like I said, a hundred million dollar or so RIA. It was a little multifamily office and uh, Don and his partners at Western, they, they had a, they knew they had a decent little business and the model historically had been Western on the M&A side of the firm buys and sells companies and they're regularly creating liquidity events for sellers. And they had this little registered investment advisor. They started it at the same time they started Western, which was in 98. And the model was, hey, Joe Entrepreneur, you now have X amount of dollars you know, in your, in your checking account that you didn't have last month. We can manage that money for you. And they had had a series of people they had hired, typically out of the brokerage community, that had run that business. And for whatever reason, you know, none of them had worked out well. And what they realized at the time was that Western's M&A business was getting bigger, meaning the, the client, the person who was selling the company was, was also getting more and more money. And right. those people were tending to be a little more sophisticated. And Don and, and Jeff and Chad and the Western guys knew that they needed someone with a more sophisticated investment background to help build that business and build out a platform that involves something other than just a, a stock and bond solution for these these people right so that was really the fit and uh, i didn't know how we were going to accomplish that but i figured um i at least had some of the tools to figure that out and and that's basically what we you know what we did over the next few years and it was in in 2011 uh, we set up the the structure, which we still use today. Uh, it's, it's a multi-series limited partnership, uh, and it has allowed us to to basically house all of our alternative investments, whether you're talking about hedge funds or real estate, private equity, or venture capital, or direct deals, or that kind of stuff under one vehicle. Have a third party administrator handle the the numbers and and reporting and all that. You know, audited. And basically bringing alternative investments into our client, you know, who can be more familiar with it. It's on the platform, the custodians that we use, which are Schwab and Fidelity, two of the large, large custodians. Uh, it's on their platform. So our clients look at all this stuff in their Fidelity account or their Schwab account, just like they're looking at their, you know, random mutual funds or stocks, et cetera. So that was the platform that we started building in 11. And we grew the firm over the course of the next uh, eight years, and uh, it became pretty clear by 2018 that either uh, we were going to have to 
build a larger team or uh, or merge with somebody else or or do something. And uh, True North Advisors, uh, which is based in Dallas, is a bit bigger than uh, a bit bigger than Western. They had invested with us in some of our private deals uh, back in 2015. And the two principals there, uh, Scott Wood and Mark Gelbach, uh, had talked to me and us over those next few years about doing something together officially. And ultimately, it was the right time in 2018. And I felt like I was in a position where either we were going to have to hire relationship managers and I wasn't going to be able to to talk directly to the clients as much, or we were going to have to hire more investment professionals and I was going to have to move away from the investments themselves. And I just didn't want to do either of those things. Yeah. And I think the, the, the thing I like the most about my job versus what I did at Q for 11 years is that sitting across the table from a real person as opposed to, you know, it all being just numbers on a spreadsheet and some institutional investor that, you know, it doesn't matter. They're going to fire you if you underperform and they're going to give you more money if you outperform, but it doesn't matter, you know, or at least you don't see the difference that you're making. That, that's that been the number one thing for me. And so I always want to have clients that I can sit across the table from that can hold me accountable for what I'm doing. At the same time, my like passion is is the investing side, and yep. I don't want to be uh, too far away from that. So we put Western together with True North, Jan one of nineteen three years ago. Um, they were about a billion in assets at the time, and we were a few hundred million. And everything that they needed, which was the alternative investment platform, largely uh, was was a perfect fit with what we needed, which was the scalability. Uh, and then they had a great financial planning and and uh, estate and tax planning capability that we really you know didn't have, and so it was actually you know that rare one plus one equals three uh, merger. Yeah, so it was perfect. I love it. We're going to talk a lot about alter like the alternative side because I think most people understand the you know the public market side of things, and you've you've really carved out on the alternative side. But one thing you said before we get into it, and just paint this picture, and this is selfishly for me, the multi-series LP, at a high level, like, what does that actually mean? Uh, so it was relatively new when we set it up in 11. Uh, Aiken Gump is, our, is, the, is who we use for the securities-related stuff, and this is what they suggested as the right solution for what we wanted to do. At the end of the day, you have uh, a number of of entities each has its own EIN but it's under the same master vehicle. Okay. And so what it has allowed us to do is when we get uh the master vehicle underneath uh our, you know, we have an auditor that audits everything every year. We have a third-party administrator that does all of our accounting and reporting. Um and then at the custodian level Fidelity or Schwab you might imagine it would be really difficult to come up with, you know, every every new limited partnership we we come up with, trying to push that through the bureaucracy of getting it approved onto Fidelity's platform right. would, would not be a fun exercise. So the the multi-series LP allowed us to basically do all that at the front end, and then we can create a new bucket whenever we feel like it. Yep. And put that onto those platforms. 
drop it into our our bank, our third party administrator, the auditors, and and it's like, hey, here's a new here's a new entity, but it's really not a new entity. It just fits underneath what we're doing now. And you know, from a legal cost perspective and everything else, it's been it's been really seamless. And um, you know, we're registered with the SEC, so they are really our oversight. And it's a pretty common you know structure nowadays. It was less common ten years ago, but it's pretty common now. Okay. Um, all right. I want to spend the next good chunk of time talking about private alternatives, underwriting sponsors. That's where you have, you know, really had the largest impact um, as of late. So like at the highest level, you can go invest in publics, which are things that you can go on the internet and click a button and buy per se, and then privates, which are, you know, tougher to get into. They probably require more due diligence because it's not all available on the internet. But can you just, just paint a picture um, this might sound like a dumb question. The difference between privates and publics as you see them and, and why you have chosen to, to put a large amount of your efforts into privates. Yeah, so I think what we really attempt to do is look through to the actual asset and then determine what is the right structure uh, within which to own that particular asset. So, uh a mutual fund that is a, a small cap stock picker is a good example. Let's say uh, there there's a lot of options. I can we can buy that in the in the public markets, and there's a lot of good portfolio managers that that run mutual funds like that. You also have the option of investing with hedge funds that do very you know very similar things to that. And instead of a daily liquidity like a mutual fund, you have quarterly liquidity. So the question then becomes. Well, that, that's the same asset. I'm going to own small cap stocks in a, in a mutual fund format or a hedge fund format. Why would I do one versus the other? And uh, in general, it's much easier to invest in a mutual fund than it is a hedge fund. You've got daily liquidity and, and uh, you don't have to worry about partnership docs and, and all that kind of stuff. But if a portfolio manager is investing in less liquid stocks, uh, he might decide I want to own uh, a hedge fund instead of be a portfolio manager for some random mutual fund. And there's a lot of other things that go into that equation, some of which is just that person wanting to own their own business. And what we've seen over the years is a lot of small cap managers that are really good want to own their own business. They don't want to work for Alliance Bernstein or you know name the mutual fund company. So as markets get less efficient, like if you go down, super large cap stuff is relatively efficient. It gets less and less efficient as you get down to, you know, small cap world and in, in publicly traded equities, and then even less efficient in the private world. Uh, we found that there are hedge funds that are doing small cap equities that the asset it looks a lot like a mutual fund, but we would prefer being invested through the hedge fund because that guy's a better manager than the person running XYZ, you know, small cap mutual fund. And on an after fees, after tax basis, our clients are going to get a better return in that vehicle. And then the question is just, are we willing to give up liquidity for a certain amount of time, you know, for that? And, and so 
that liquidity or illiquidity premium is is important to us, and and we think about you know that when we're when we're crafting the portfolios. And on and when you're talking about every quarter, that's basically just the hedge fund saying, uh, when you sign up with us, uh, you have to give us a 90 day notice, or you can redeem at the end of every quarter, basically. Yeah, that's right. And so yeah. uh, depending on what a hedge fund might do, you know, you see you see different terms, but as a as kind of at the at the base of it the common liquidity is a quarterly liquidity type figure. And, uh, and that makes sense for them. If I'm running a small cap equity portfolio and I know that it would take me a month to liquidate my portfolio, I probably want to make investors give me a 45 or 60 day notice so I don't get caught, you know, and with this liquidity mismatch, right. if, if a bad thing happens. Okay. So you've decided on a, let's call it, we can keep going on a small cap stocks. You've decided, I don't want to be in a mutual fund. I want to do this in a hedge fund because the managers are better. And But the first decision you made was, I want to be in small cap stocks. The second was, I want to do it through a hedge fund. What is this now what happens in, in, a, in identifying who? So let's say you give it to a subset of like three good managers. I want to talk about how you ultimately get to this as our guy or our girl. Yeah. It's... Uh... It's unfortunately there there is a lot of art and science in this business. And it is a it is a healthy combination of figuring out what actual analytical work can be done on this particular person and then combining that with uh the, the soft type of stuff, which which ultimately in many cases comes down to is this person a moneymaker? Yeah. And uh, there are, <laughs> you know, it is it is not easy to just answer that question off the top of your head. But I'll tell you, I've met multiple people over the years and the first meeting I had with them within an hour, I knew we were going to invest money with that person. Yeah. And, um, and so if we're just talking about a hedge fund, it, it's easier um, because there tends to be some kind of a track record for that that particular person, you know, in in public markets investing, for instance. Um, you know, most funds uh, are not started by a 24 year old that has no track record. Now that does that does happen occasionally, but in in most cases, whether it's an equity fund or a credit focused fund or whatever, you've got a portfolio manager who probably spent a number of years at a different firm you know, maybe as a junior analyst and then a senior analyst and, and, uh, might've had his own portfolio for a while. So there may be some track record you can actually speak to, but you can certainly get to references on, you know, what that, what that person was able to do at, at their firm. And, uh, and so a lot of it is just putting that, that kind of information together and then determining, you know, do we think this is the right the right person to back. You know, there's a myriad questions that, you know, you have to ask on the back end operationally. Do they have things set up in a manner where, you know, nobody's going to be allowed to steal money and and the, you know, books and records are going to be proper and all that kind of stuff. And and that's a big challenge, I think, in in the hedge fund space is the person that starts the firm is generally an investment person. And they're usually really good at what they do on the investment side they may or may not be any good at all at running a business. Mm-hmm. And it's a rare bird, actually, that is a, you know, a really 
good investor and a savant, you know, at their particular asset class and can create alpha and all that, but then can also run a business effectively and manage people and think about, you know, what they're doing as a business. And, you know, finding that intersection is the sweet spot because it's, it's, it's a tough deal. Like this hedge fund guy that starts his own firm, he has dreams of going and making 20% a year. He does not have dreams of going around the country on six trips a year, begging for money. Right. And, you know, there are all kinds of things that, um, as you know, and as, as we know in our business, um, that is the unsexy stuff that, that you've got to do. And, uh, so, you know, a lot of that's, you know, combining all of those things together, it's actually relatively easy to look at track records and figure out, you know, what you think the return profile, you know, might be and all that kind of stuff. Uh, but a lot of people wash out because they can't raise money. Yeah. And so, you know, we got to hit that sweet spot of, you know, this guy, um, is personable enough to meet with other investors and we think they can go raise money at the same time i've always had a real aversion to you know like the super cool kid hedge fund type person who uh is on you know cnbc because then i'm like well they're really good at raising money and they're spending all their time doing that i actually want somebody that's looking at a bloomberg every now and then or you know (laughs) trying to figure out how to make me some money so instead of just making money for themselves are you adverse, uh, you particular, does it matter to you if somebody like, are you going to invest in a first timer or do you usually like to get into a hedge fund that already, there's one thing to have a track record, leaving a firm, starting your own. Are you already wanting them to have a track record at their new firm or will you look at, you know, at, I think it's a structural advantage that we have as an independent RIA that I don't have an artificial mandate around track record. Right. And so um, if, uh, f- you know, for your average endowment or foundation, or certainly for, you know, the the big private banks or huge brokerages of the, of the world to invest in a hedge fund, you've got to have an exceedingly long track record and tons of assets under management, et cetera. And I generally would say that the alpha is, is gone by the time that happens. And so we like young first time managers. Uh, we've done, I don't remember exact numbers at the moment, but let's say we have 20, 18, 20 odd hedge funds in our portfolio at the moment. And I would say five of them were day one investments with those funds where we were literally the, you know, the launch customer with them. So, um, and I, and I just, I, I see that as a structural advantage that that we've got. And do you usually get some type of better term or some something that, you know, for being in early that that is also part of your thesis? Yeah. Yeah. Generally, there's a what's known as founders economics or a founders share class or something like that. So you get a lower fee for, you know, for being in early. And and we we take advantage of that whenever possible. Yeah. And again, I just feel like it's a structural advantage that we have. Um, and so you know, we don't have any any mandate like that. We want to be smart about what we're doing, but there's no board that sits above me that's waiting to fire me if there's a bad outcome. All right. I care about is our customers. And yeah. so uh, if I'm the CIO of, a, of an endowment, uh, I'm not a business owner. I'm an employee. of of that of that endowment and my board is my boss and so why am i going to make a decision 
that risks my board looking at me saying that was dumb, you're fired. I'm not going to do that. So what you end up seeing time and again, and this gets worse as you get up into larger assets, I mean, it's the pensions are generally regarded as the worst of all, is people are making decisions to, uh, you know, based on job security yeah. and not based on making money. Yep. And so, you know, I we just always go back to thinking, you know, we want to make money for our clients after tax, after fees, and that's the goal. This might be a loaded question, I just, I loved how you put it that you can, and we're about to peel back the onion a little bit further, but you've sat with so many of these people that you can sit with somebody for an hour and you just kind of know that's the qualitative. Is there something that you hear in that hour? Is, is there something consistent that when you see those people that even in your gut within an hour, you're like, this is the guy outside of a track record that's amazing. Is there something else that you've seen or is there mannerisms? Is it how they treat people? Like, how do you know? I, it's That's a tough question uh, because I'm thinking of a few that we invested with uh, where that was the case. And it was almost different for, Every time. for each of them. Um, there's a UK-based credit manager uh, that came into town. They launched in early 14. We invested day one. Blackstone seeded them. Uh, so it was us and Blackstone and the portfolio manager was, was the money on the, on day one. And I remember meeting him in the summer of 13 in Fort Worth, you know, this little kind of mousy British guy. And <laughs> I wasn't necessarily expecting much. And he started talking about distressed credit and, and what he did. And I mean, it wasn't, it, it wasn't 30 minutes into the conversation. I just knew it. And, and he, to this day is maybe one of the, one of the smarter macro guys I've ever met. And so with him, it was like, I just had a sense that that he could combine the macro and the micro yep. into you know building a, an attractive portfolio. And he had a ridiculous track record in terms of the the resume, uh, but that's not necessarily the, the end all be all for us either. I mean, he happened to go to Cambridge and have you know kind of like really super blue chip background, but we have other people that are more. Um, you know, just bootstrapped a business and and didn't have all of that blue chip background. And I can appreciate that. I mean, I didn't go to Ivy League school. So, yep. um, so I don't know, I'm avoiding the question, but, uh, no. but there's, there are, have been a number of things on, uh, in, you know, in those meetings where, where, you know, I, I'd say the only common denominator is that they're all really smart, but, yeah. but there's a lot of really smart people that, that aren't good at making money. Yeah. Um, Okay, if you think of this like top of funnel and you you see hundreds of new sponsors a year and and people raising money, part of your job is obviously getting to the yes, but maybe even more importantly is like how quickly you get to a no so you're not distracted for time, you know, meeting with folks you're ultimately never going to invest with. So maybe like starting at top of funnel, I'm going to try and ask a series of questions is like what is an immediate like, nope, not interested, not looking at it, assuming that you're interested in the industry that they're in? We won't start there where you could be like, well, I don't even like what they're investing in. Assuming you have you like what they're investing in, the product, the asset, what's your first, like, what are some things that could happen in the first like couple days or even minutes of reading something? You're like, we're out. Yeah, so... um this isn't always the case, but we have a, a 
very material natural bias against large large managers okay and so um every particular asset class is different but i would say you know an equity hedge fund or credit hedge fund a couple billion dollars that's the limit like i have no interest in in investing in a 10 billion dollar distressed fund why uh well there's one uh, in the Wall Street Journal uh, today, that that decided to shut down their their fund, well known uh, distressed credit fund. When you're managing that much money, it, let's say if I'm managing ten billion dollars as a as a credit fund, uh, I've probably, you know, I want to have a a position of of five um, percent, you know, for for my bigger names and. Uh, you want to build a $500 million position in a, in a name, there's maybe, you, know, you can count on two hands, the amount of distressed credits that within anybody could, could build a $500 million position in. So there's a lot of eyeballs on those particular, uh, mm -hmm. those particular names. And there's just not much, uh, there's not much inefficiency in, in that market. So I would take the young, smart $500 million uh or even 200 million dollar distressed fund all day over the over the super tenured 10 billion dollar fund even though that portfolio manager is probably you know better and has certainly seen a lot more he's just not going to have the same opportunities okay so so size is a really quick one for us and um and what it ends up you know meaning is you're passing on probably a lot of really good people because there's a reason they're at that size. I mean, for the for the most part, any big fund you see probably has a really good track record. Yeah. And so uh, that that's one. Um, anytime we're getting into something that's so hard to underwrite, you know, it's it's uh, because we don't understand it. Then that's a that's an issue yeah. uh, for us internally. And we have a five person investment team, some really smart people, and. Uh, it's still really difficult for us to look at something like biotech right. and, and form a, a coherent opinion on it. So for something like that, we are invested in some biotech funds. We rely a lot heavier on the track record for a fund like that than maybe a, a generalist, you know, young credit hedge fund manager. Cause I feel like I can ask the credit guy, you know, some actually intelligent questions and, and, and form an opinion on whether he can make money. I can't ask a, a biotech guy who himself is a medical doctor or a PhD, you know, what what the reasons are why he owns this stock. And and he can tell me and I can listen and nod, but it doesn't mean that I'm going to understand what he's talking about. So yeah. um, if we can't understand it, that's a that's a quick one as well. Uh, I, I alluded to this earlier, but but people that we feel like are really good at selling and or just overly focused on marketing um is a turnoff for us uh there there have been a number over the years uh that we've seen that have done a great job raising money and uh i've looked at it or we've looked at it as a team and thought I'm not really sure why, you know, how they have this much traction. And the reality is they've got it together. They're like really good uh, at raising money. And uh, it's clear that a lot of resources are going into that. And it just doesn't jive with our, you know, with our mandate. So seeing evidence of that, you know, if I if I see a, a fund that's got 15 employees and and five of them are, 
you know, marketing investor relations, like on, like a hedge fund, that's a, that's a no. I'd rather have the fund that has no marketing or investor relations people, and and it's clear that they're not focused on it enough. And yeah. uh, and then, you know, that's where you can talk to portfolio managers over time and then give them advice on things. But um, so those are those are three of them. Uh, there's a lot of stuff later that you uncover on the due diligence side um that you know becomes a problem but you can't you don't see it until you're checking references or 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 you're in your second or third meeting and uh we've seen you know there was a fund recently we were looking at that uh it became clear to us that the two senior guys were stepping back a little bit which is not in and of itself a problem but there were two main kind of mid-level people that looked to be carrying the weight and through a reference check, not someone who was on the person, not the funds reference list, but somebody we found through LinkedIn, we figured out that one of those two guys was looking and, you know, we passed on it. And then a few months later, the guy left. And so, and this is a, you know, a closed end private equity style fund. And, and I would have been really disappointed if we had you know given them money for 10 years and then one of the two people that we thought was really, you know, driving the ship is now gone. So there's things like that, you know, that, that, that pop up as well. And the older I get, the more gray hairs I get, the better the pattern recognition. And, and you start to see things like that over time. And we've got a relatively senior investment team between the five of us. And so it's been really helpful. That's been a big advantage you know, since we did the transaction with True North versus uh, you know, before when it was Western, it was basically me and a senior analyst having to kind of you know figure that out ourselves. I want to get back to a little more of the things that happen like in meetings three and four. But before we just go there, um, just a couple things that just came to mind. Um, and I think I know the answer to this, but the, the reason why there would be a firm that wants to put money and call it the $10 billion distress credit fund is because they themselves have to make large allocations. So is it like large allocations matching up with large funds? Like why would the other, if, if somebody else was sitting here that, that did put money in that $10 billion fund, what would be kind of the reason that they're doing it? Um, yeah, that's, generally speaking, that's probably the biggest reason is, is uh, the groups that have to put out a bunch of money. Yeah. So if I'm JP Morgan and I want to offer uh, a large hedge fund on my platform to all my private banking clients around the country, I need a, a billion dollars worth of capacity yeah. in, that, in that particular fund. And so that narrows your, you know, narrows your list in a hurry. And so that's one of them. Uh, same thing on the pension side. Uh, you know, in Texas, you have Texas Teachers, uh, Employee Retirement System, Utimco, you know, big Austin-based allocators. And whether we're talking about hedge funds or private equity funds or whatever, they're they're writing nine figure checks. Right. So if a fund is less than a billion dollars, it's out. Yeah. And so that's just, you know, that it's a different sandbox yeah. that, that they're that they're playing in. And as a general rule, you know, whether we're talking about maybe a little less so in the hedge fund world, but certainly in private equity, we have made a very good living over the last, you know, 10 years, and this is preaching to the choir with you, uh, living in the lower middle market and selling into the big people at the asset level. 
Yeah. And so, you know, our real estate funds, similar to, you know, what your process has been. Hey, we're going to we're gonna buy these buildings one at a time and then we're going to sell them to Blackstone 40 at a time. Yep. And uh, and that goes for private equity. That goes for venture, you know, a number of asset classes. Yeah, yeah. Really good at raising money. If your goal is to make your clients money, uh, then clearly you want to find someone that's also good at making money. But what's amazing, I think, is that there's like all these people out here that actually don't make a lot of money for their investment funds. But like what you said, they're just really good at raising money. What does really good at raising money mean? They have a nice presentation, a charismatic founder, uh, tons of marketing and follow up. Like how do how are they able to kind of keep raising money when they have the track record doesn't show that? There, you're worthy of it. Yeah, I think it's a, I think it's a um, short-term greedy versus long-term greedy question. Uh, there's a you know well-known hedge fund manager that I met with right when I started at Western. I had known him from the Q days, but we didn't have any any official um, interaction prior to Western. But I had a I had a short list of you know. 10 or 20 firms that I wanted to meet when I started at Western and thinking about building out our hedge fund portfolio. And this is a person who's on TV regularly and, and certainly was back then and, and really well known. And I just, over the course of a couple meetings, got that very distinct sense that um, the emperor doesn't really have any clothes here. Like this, yeah. it's, it's a, it's a great meeting. They're, they're super, you know, gregarious and, and, the office is unbelievably nice. And that's another thing, like it's a bit of a turnoff for me. I mean, I've seen some really nice offices in New York and other places where, you know, not just not just nice. My I have a nice office, but but opulent where, you know, I just walk in and think, wow, like th this is really important to these people. And you know, offices in the GM building in Manhattan that, you know, that rent for, you know, 250 bucks a foot type yeah. stuff. And, and that's just a turnoff, uh, for me. Cause I just feel like, uh, they're focused on something a little different than I am. Yeah. yeah. Um, when you said that you go on LinkedIn and you found like a reference, um, assuming you've kind of made it through, how much time do y'all spend on references? And is it different per kind of sponsor? Um, like, is it one of those things like the more you have to keep calling references, that's usually a signal that we're probably done? Or is that usually actually a good thing that you're hearing from lots of people and they're all saying good stuff? Yeah, that would be usually a bad thing. I mean, I think if we're if we need to check more than three, then then there's something that we're trying to uncover that we've that we feel like is a red flag. Um, and you just point blank asking these people, like, is this a guy a liar? Is he unethical? Like, what, what do you ask these yeah, yeah, you you calling somebody up and um, it's a little bit of an art to you know not asking leading questions, right? I mean, you say, "Is the guy a liar?" Yeah, yeah. he's probably going to say no. Um, but you can say, "Is there ever anything that you saw that was a little bit of an uncomfortable position or where he was faced with an ethical dilemma?" Tell me the story, and then just shut up, and then. You'd be surprised at the kind of stuff that people will tell you over time. Uh, so, using <laughs> si using silence when you're asking people questions uh, can be can be super effective. Uh, but I'd say on the reference thing in general, um, we're not super heavy on it. Uh, 
we the less comfortable we are making the decision on our own, the more we will do reference checks. And so a good example, there's a uh, a VC that we've looked at that does uh, a lot of work in artificial intelligence and cybersecurity and kind of like super technical VC type investing. Uh, they're up in Boston real hooked into the MIT ecosystem and Harvard and um, not a super long track record. Pretty, you know, pretty, it would be a relatively early investment. We'd be in their second fund. Uh, and we did a fair amount of reference checking on people like that. And and largely with first fund investors and then with some, you know, that are coming in now and then just trying to triangulate on, you know, what are other people seeing? And, and, then, and then we found some investors that have looked at them and not made the investment and then yep. and figuring out what they're saying. And so the less comfortable we are or the less we know about an asset class, maybe the more we're going to lean on that. Yeah. How much do, do you put any weight into DD of if you co-invest with other firms like yours or individual investors and like four of your really good buddies or folks that you invest with are in a deal? Does that change the level of due diligence you feel comfortable doing knowing that if these guys and girls are in you know, we should be good to go. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'd say it makes a huge difference to me uh, based on who exactly you're talking about. And right. when I started at Western, I didn't even have an analyst. And we we had an analyst real, you know, relatively quickly, but a two-person investment team, it, it's pretty difficult to build a, you know, an all-asset alternative portfolio in any reasonable amount of time. And so I spent a bunch of time just networking with other allocators that were smarter than me and leaning on leaning on them and and I've always tried to reciprocate and help add value or or whatever but um, I mean the best example uh, people that are really good good friends to this day but didn't start out as friends they just started out as peers uh, are the are Patrick O'Connor and Apurva Meta who ran the endowment for Cook Children's for a long time and Cook had had slash has a stellar, you know, top quartile track record in the endowment and foundation space. And they had a five person investment team back when I didn't. And uh, I piggybacked on a ton of their investments and they did real work. And that, you know, that endowment foundation continues to do real work on their managers. And so if I knew they were in it, uh, it didn't check the boxes that you know, all of them that I wanted to be in it, but I knew there was a certain amount of due diligence that went into that. And uh, I could probably check, you know, most of the quantitative boxes and half of the qualitative boxes. And then we had to determine whether something was right for our portfolio. But there are, you know, that's one example. There are probably 10 of those that, that, you know, groups that we have talked with regularly, and it ranges from single family offices to large institutions um, that uh, that will rely on. Uh, but these are all people that I I have a, a pretty good idea of what their due diligence process looks like. Right. Just because there's a big name invested with somebody. I think that's actually, you know, can be a, a real trap. Um, and you know, the, the biggest recent example would be, um, now I'm blanking the blood testing company, uh, Theranos. Yeah. Theranos. And I mean, look at all the investors in Theranos and, 
it feels like half of them invested just because the other people invested and uh and you know house of cards i just got done listening to that podcast it is actually unbelievable how many people she was able to get in that cap table um uh we we've been talking about uh hedge funds which are uh you know it's like quarterly liquidity but then like the next step is pri- like true private investments where you there it really is no liquidity per se yep um is there a difference in how you look at hedge funds or underwrite hedge fund managers versus how you would underwrite a sponsor of a private investment or pretty much the same i think i think it's pretty much the same i mean we there's ongoing due diligence after you invest, you know, in a hedge fund, because I know that I can get out every single quarter. And so there's certain things that I'm going to want to keep talking about. And then on the, on the private side, you write your check and and you're in, and then there's certain things you want to continue asking about. And there's other things that are a waste of time. And so, um, but I'd say the, the, the due diligence is, is similar. It's not like we're, you know, doing X amount of due diligence on a hedge fund and then twice as much you know, on a private, we, we look at all of that, you know, if, if we're going into a limited partnership, then we're doing the, the roughly the same amount of, of due diligence. And then when it gets down to just pure structure, like fees promote, is that something that you're checking like right at the beginning? So you're not wasting a bunch of time on the deal if, if you already don't like that, or are there things that you're willing to uh, maybe get comfortable with? If you don't like a structure at first glance, but are there things that can justify it by the end? Like, how do you think about all that? Yeah, I mean, so I definitely flip to the back page first, yeah. um, <laughs> like like a lot of allocators, I think. Uh, but I'd say a few things there. We will attempt to make the determination of whether or not we're going to invest based again on after tax, after fees numbers, and there are groups that charge a higher fee that earn that higher fee and we're happy to pay it. And then there are, you know, groups that, that overcharge and and we don't. And so one thing that I've said a number of times to, uh, to GPs, and I don't know if they've liked it or not, but it is the honest answer. Uh, and this goes for hedge funds or private investments or anything else is, uh, this isn't, it is, um, not you, it's me. And, the, and, and what I mean by that is if I've got, uh, we'll use real estate as an example because, you know, familiar to you. So literally in the last three or four weeks, the thing that I've been seeing the most on our desk is industrial development. So one-off deals. So, and I have seen four or five of these in the last month, Texas-based industrial development x hundred thousand square feet outside of austin or dallas or you know name the place and uh and the fee structures are are you know fairly different but if i look at 10 of those deals and this goes you know again hedge funds venture or anything else i look at 10 of those deals and i think the deals look pretty similar and i think the manager looks pretty similar and everything else checks out and manager A has a 30% promote, and manager B has a 40, and manager C has a 50, and it really is apples to apples on the other stuff, or at least I think it's apples to apples, then how, like what decision, I, I only have one decision to make. I'll, I'll, I'll invest with the one that has the 30% promote if I think everything else is truly the same. And, and you do see that, like especially in the hedge fund space where 
there are a thousand small cap managers and some of them are two and 20 and some of them are one in 10 or, or you got founders economics or, or whatever. So if I don't trust my underwriting enough to be confident that that guy with the highest fee is going to outperform that hurdle, then why should I invest in that? Because the fees are going to happen and I am paying that that management fee, or I am paying that promote if the deal works out, whether or not they make money, you know, cheap we'll fees are good at collecting on yeah, their fees. Yeah. Usually <laughs> like I, I don't forget to send my quarterly bills to clients either. So, um, so, uh, you know, we, we, we've seen that regularly that's, that's happened. And there's, um, you know, the number of, of local deals, like on the real estate side that, you know, XYZ Dallas sponsor who knows my partners or something and, you know, phone in and they're buying value add multifamily and it's a 40% promote. I just tell them at the very beginning, I'm sorry, we're not, you know, that's not our, we don't, because we you don't, can, we're not paying that. Like we've got managers that we really like and we do like multifamily value add and I'm paying a 20% promote right now and, yeah. and on managers that we, that we really think a lot of. And so if that market goes away, then I'll start looking at the 40% guy. For sure. A couple more questions on, on this. And then I just want to get into capital allocation for a little bit, but the, you're seeing it in, we'll, we'll take real estate, but you're kind of seeing it now. If you go to like angel list where people are syndicating you know, VC investments, crowdfunding. I think real estate's probably kind of the leader in this democratization of capital where all this capital that traditionally has never been able to get into these kind of private alternatives um, is now starting to happen. I mean, you can now go buy like a piece of, you don't have to buy the $50 million piece of art. You can buy a $5 piece of that art. How do you think about that from your world where traditionally you've sat in a seat where you kind of have the money and 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 more leverage to kind of get access to this stuff, especially as you talk about like what GPs are charging. And then on the flip side, you have this whole like revolution happening on the Internet where everybody and their mother is trying to give access to call it the the guy that didn't have access before. And you like that's going to create a supply demand issue. And I would think that in someone like your shoes, who's had traditionally a lot of leverage in this space, it, it, you must think about it to some degree. Yeah, I, it's interesting. I because I think it's a good thing just in general. Like I, I believe that the accredited investor rules are stupid. Yeah. And so that said, we play by the rules. Now, most of our client base is, is meets the highest qualification, which is the qualified purchaser status. And so we don't have to worry about it too much. Yeah. But I just think the rules are dumb. Uh, I that, agree. But, but it, it is what it is. And so I think the democratization of, of private investments is a great thing overall. Um, I do believe, and I know this is self-serving, but I do believe that somebody, you know, that everybody needs some kind of a gatekeeper right. if they're not on their own capable of you know underwriting xyz deal yeah. and uh, and I'm I'm a big believer that a client paying us 1% or 80 bips or whatever our you know fee works out to be for private investments uh is probably you know that probably pays off you know multiples of itself over time in that we can screen out what are, you know, the major red flags because we've seen it, you know, so many times before. So yeah. I, th I think it, it's great overall in practice 
there are going to be people that are going to do direct deals that they're not capable of underwriting. And I think you're going to see some bad outcomes. Do you think that more alpha exists in direct deals than like anything public, at least where we sit today? Yeah, I'd say as a general rule, I think I think I think you're you know, you're most efficient in the large cap stock world and you go to less and less efficient as you get into, you know, illiquid public markets assets. And then as you get into, you know, the private side, uh, clearly it's, it's, there's just less efficiency in those markets and, um, you know, a marketplace like the venture capital world is still very much a relationship game. I mean, that isn't, that is not an efficient market. And so, uh, you know, where there are inefficient markets, then alpha can be created. Okay. So you, you have all, you've selected all these managers, you're getting thrown thousands of ideas, you know, where there's crypto, there's VC, even within VC, there's AI, there's biotech, there's consumer. Um, you have a lot of places that you could put money and you are essentially a capital allocator. You got to figure out one, where would be safe places to put it, but then two, who are we going to put it with and how much are we going to give them? So like, is it client by client? How do you think about how much money is going to each idea or uh, industry or whatever you want to call it? Yeah, it's a little. So as it relates to to True North and how how a client ends up with what their asset allocation is, the individual wealth manager at our firm uh, is responsible for helping set that. So the investment team uh, in our firm is creating the menu and the wealth managers ordering off the menu. Right. Let's, let's put it that way. So, uh, so I'm not necessarily thinking about what the asset allocation is for each individual client Got it. at True North. That said, uh, all of our I, I do manage clients personally. And so I have, let's say, you know, 20 families that I am setting the asset allocation for. And so I, I know exactly what I want that you know, to be for them based on what the opportunities are that we've been able to find, you know, in the public markets, the private markets, the you know, alternative space, et cetera. Got and it. um, it's not a. It's not a top-down, you know, asset allocation model. It is. It's more opportunistic. Um, I'm not smart enough to remember exactly how uh, how it, it it was done at you know Yale, but but the the gist of it was that we're going to be looking at uh, we're going to combine the art and science, and we're going to figure out you know exactly what where we want it to be at any given time based on uh, based on the academic rigor and looking at at our the numbers and analytically what we think is going to happen and then also you know the the art of you know where is the world headed and you know i think like paying attention to capital flows for instance i mean that's something that is important and you can get run over by capital flows if you're in the wrong you know the wrong spot and i can What's look that at, mean i mean i can look at a bunch of um like ESG is an example where we've got an overweight position uh, through a manager in uh, utilities that have uh, high amounts of renewables exposure. And we think there are just 
continuing tidal wave after tidal wave of money coming into ESG over the next few years. And I don't see that stopping anytime soon. And so we're trying to figure out, okay, given that that's going to happen, how are we going to take advantage of that? And, you know, that means new infrastructure being built to house all these renewables and, you know, other types of things. Uh, That doesn't mean that we're not investing in natural gas wells in Colorado right now because we are because we think you know like I'm long we get we, gas we, right we, now, it gets back look I want to make money <laughs> um, but at the same time you know that's a that's a good example of one where there is no capital in oil and gas right now and so assets are super cheap and we find that attractive we think there's going to be excess amounts of capital in ESG over the next 20 years and there already are and so just knowing that, I don't necessarily want to own that solar farm, you know, that your average, you know, pension or whoever is being pushed to buy because I don't like those cash flows because that thing's trading rich, but I might want to own the company that's building that solar farm. Right. And so, um, that, you know, that, that's kind of an example. Yeah. Yeah. I've learned a lot about capital flows the last couple of years. And it's, it's one of those things that even if you don't necessarily we're talking about ESG right now, but if, even if you don't fully believe in whatever it is, if somebody with a crystal ball said, whether you believe in it or not, there's a hundred billion or a trillion dollars coming into it. So find something to believe in within the thing. Right. That's, that's an investment strategy in and of itself. Right. Yeah. I think that's right. Um, but we, you, well, you'd asked about, about the asset allocation in general. And I'd say that, that are, you know, it's a bit of a, top down, bottoms up, but it's it's opportunistic in that um, there are times when, for instance, distressed credit is attractive. Like objectively speaking, in, in the depths of COVID, you could buy high yield bonds at a 15% yield. And today high yield bonds are, you know, yielding 4%. So yeah. which was which was more attractive. Right. And uh, so the average wealth management firm that uh that exists today i pulled some stats a couple weeks ago when i was thinking about this just like a 10 percent allocation to alternative and private investments and if you look at yale's endowment uh they have 20 percent of their endowment in vc and like 70 or 75 percent of the endowment is in private and alternatives and so yale has the luxury of being able to not think about liquidity much at all um, except for what little, you know, the endowment pays out every year, but they're thinking in generational terms. And some of our clients can think in terms of, you know, 50, 100 years, but most of them are thinking about what they're doing for their generation and their kids' generation. And so, you know, there are some liquidity parameters that we generally have, but we'll kind of sit like halfway between those two. Yep. All right. One more question on this, and then I'm going to kind of deviate from the original plan. I kind of want to talk about what you're seeing in the market right now. And and we had had an interesting conversation about uh, what co- what what you did during not just you, but what 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 opportunities were happened during COVID, um, and just kind of what that experience was like for you as somebody that's placing capital. But the last question on just capital allocation, real quick. A hedge fund, I guess, is uh, ha- has one large fund, but a lot of the the privates. Uh, you might take a real estate fund. They have real estate fund one, two, three, four, five. So when, you, especially if you're getting into one, kind of the goal on your end is I'm hoping I'm picking someone that I can continue to be in every fund in. So my only question really is, 
um, assuming that they're providing returns, is there any reason why you don't continue to go into each funds? Are there things that come up that you're like, we're done with this one? Yeah, it's happened uh, a number of times on the private side where we've invested in um, a fund or two or even three and then stopped. And uh, in real estate, I can think of two examples. Uh, one of them outgrew us. So it was the first fund we did with this particular group uh, was a hundred million bucks. It was their second fund, uh, their their uh, their third, which was the second one we did with them, was two forty or two fifty, and uh, and then their fourth was going to be five hundred or so. And that was when we just said, you know, no, they're kind of outgrowing us. And you could see in their portfolio the changes that were that yeah. were happening. They were not able to buy the same types of assets, and so they outgrew us. And and you know, they these particular people are great people and super successful, and they've now raised six or seven funds and managed several billion dollars. And uh, I'm super happy for them, but it just wasn't it was not the right choice for us. And sometimes that's kind of hard because the easy button is just, yeah, just keep dialing it up. Right. And uh, there was another fund that uh, we did two funds of theirs. And when it came time for the next one, uh, it was more of a sense of that we just felt like we had found um, found some other things that, that we liked better. Yeah. Uh, that was a real estate fund that is not an operator so they have operating partners on all their properties and you know that's probably just something that, that's changed for us over the last few years as we've tended to you know to invest more directly with operators right. where you where you don't have a couple of sets of fees okay all right let's spend the last we got probably 10 15 minutes uh then i gotta go get a haircut what's going on in the market right now uh, I know there's lots of markets. There's lots of asset classes. Uh, I'm not asking you to predict the future any more than anybody else, but just like, what are you thinking right now? Yeah, I don't have any smart opinions on on equities. Uh, I think it's more likely than not we'll see a healthy correction over the next couple of years, but uh, that's not a a a, uh, a dissenting opinion at this point. So yeah. uh, nothing really smart to say there, honestly. Uh, there is, uh, there is a lot of capital that has come more recently into the, what I'll call the kind of large cap private markets. And so, uh, on the one hand, this capital has to be put to work. On the other hand, I think that prices in kind of traditional LBO private equity are high, you know, for, for companies that are trading or call it, you know, companies that are that are $10 million and up of EBITDA, we've seen multiples expand dramatically. And I'm, I sit in the office with, you know, with all of the Western people, they're buying and selling companies, you know, every day, this is where they live in the middle market. And, you know, if the average business traded for seven times EBITDA five years ago, it's 10 and a half today. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, and that's worked because there's been cheap debt, and uh, and to the extent that the next buyer comes along, it's fine. Uh, but I would say, you know, we're we're pretty we're we're avoiding that for sure. So we're not really touching any kind of regular cap, you know, private equity. I'd say we're in the lower middle market and nichey stuff if we're doing it. Uh, venture is very similar. 
there's a ton of money floating around in late stage venture. I mean, the, the rounds that you're seeing, you know, for, for companies that, that may or may not end up making it are, are pretty interesting. And the public markets are, are showing that over the last year, they're spitting out a lot of, uh, a lot of these VC backed companies that had, you know, oversubscribed rounds pre IPO and, and then now all of a sudden, you know, are getting, are getting murdered after, you know, a year after they go public. Yeah. And, uh, so late stage VC, I think we're, uh, we're pretty, pretty bearish on, and then, uh, fixed income, uh, in general, I would say, uh, high grade fixed income. Like I don't own any, any fixed income at all in my portfolio and none of our clients who are under the age of call it 50, you know, do, uh, I just think there's more risk than reward in there. And even high yield, uh, fixed income, which is, you know, close to my heart. Cause we, you know, Q was a credit focused shop and I always pay attention to it. Um, there was about a month you know, during COVID where it was, super interesting. And, and we were able to buy a, a bunch and then we sold it exactly a year later, but, uh, but that's not attractive at all. So high yield, your average high yield bond today trades three, three and a half percent over treasuries. And these are companies that are pretty levered. And if something goes south in the economy that, you know, that they'll go down in a hurry. And, um, uh, I, I, I've, we see a lot of that in in people's portfolios right now and there's a big uh, a, a big family that i was visiting a couple weeks ago and it's a nine figure family we manage kind of half of the assets for them and there's another wealth manager that does the other half and we do a twice a year meeting and the other group was talking about their fixed income portfolio and they were telling the family hey our duration is you know two years shorter than the index and our our yield is a point and a half higher than the index and the, you know everyone's smiling and nodding oh that's good you know short duration and high yield that's that's great and i'm thinking to myself geez i hope like credit spreads don't start cracking because their fixed income portfolio is going to look a lot like equities yeah. and so we you just you know we have a drastic underweight to uh to you know, liquid fixed income where are spreads and high yields right now compared to where they were in like going into 08 uh so historic median is in the ballpark of 550 over treasuries okay. and so today call it 333 or 325 or something so a couple hundred basis points tighter than median um during 08 uh, they might have the, the the absolute tight was in the 250 neighborhood or or something like that, kind of uh, late 06. And then in 07, they started moving out a little bit. And then uh, at the very worst point in late 08, it was 2000 basis points over. So you think you know, your average high yield bond was yielding 20 percent, like your average high yield bond. And we're at four uh, and a half we, percent right now. Yeah. And so. um Historically, you can kind of look back at markets and say any time high yield spreads have gotten to, you know, seven, eight hundred basis points over treasuries, it would have been a good time to start buying a bunch. And, you know, the, the 2008 scenario is the one outlier that, you know, if someone had done that, then they would have been licking some wounds a few months later. But yeah. as a general rule. Um, that's been good. And it briefly hit 900 or a thousand during COVID, but you had to buy them within two weeks and then it was over. 
Yeah, it's it's just it's uh it's interesting because uh, rates are at virtually nothing. Inflation's running rampant, which is basically a tax on your cash. So you're kind of forced to put it to work. Uh, yet a lot of the things might be telling you maybe you shouldn't go all in right now. Right. It's just a really interesting setup. Um, and I kind of agree with what you said. Who knows when? And we could be sitting here 10 years from now and there's been, you know, we've continued kind of floating along. But it certainly feels to me like something has to happen. What that is, the magnitude, I don't know. That obviously creates opportunity. Um, but I definitely feel it. Yeah, I think that's right. And my my old boss at Q had a great analogy that he would talk about being a capital giver or a capital taker. And there's times when you want to be a capital giver and there's times when you want to be a capital taker. And like the funny story that happened at Q was this was during the dot com bubble, 99 or something. A couple of kids came into the office and they had some idea for a tech company and and they wanted to value it at like $50 million, which at the time <laughs> sounded insane. Today, that would probably be normal. But, <laughs> um, but but in 99, that sounded insane. And and he said, yeah, you know, no thanks. It's a good idea. You guys seem smart, but, you know, no thanks. And then, uh, you know, they left. And then he heard a few weeks later that they got the deal funded. And he said right then, hmm, maybe it's not the time to be a capital giver. Maybe I need to be a capital taker. And he started actually like they 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 spun up some tech companies and ended up launching one that ended up doing quite well. Yep. And so right now kind of feels like the time to be a capital taker. And so the most obvious trade for young people is go, you know, buy a house and get some long fixed rate mortgage. Yeah. No, I get as much low long term debt as you can. Um, yeah, I'm with you. Um all right. Is there any parting thoughts, anything we didn't cover um, over the next five minutes that might be interesting to chat about? Yeah, no, it's interesting as you know, our client base tends to be people that own businesses. And as an owner of, of our business, I feel really fortunate that we've got a bunch of people that are kind of like-minded in our firm. And I feel like our long-term incentive is aligned perfectly with clients. And so you know, my goal is to create a lot of enterprise value in our business. And you know, we don't get carried interest. Uh, we charge a pretty low management fee every year and our clients can fire us whenever they want. So the way you create enterprise value in our business is you try to add a lot of value for your clients and you never lose them because yeah. if if you have a high amount of client churn, life is not very fun. Yeah. And so I feel like that's a really good alignment. And you know, it's nice talking to business owners because we're business owners too. Yeah. And, and like I said, the the best thing about my job is sitting across the table from from XYZ, you know, person who started some company that might be a totally blue collar business, but he out hustled and outsmarted everybody else. And, um, you know, we have several clients that are, uh, a, a lot wealthier than your average, you know, super successful hedge fund guy. And they didn't have to stare at Bloomberg screens all day to do it yeah, you know, yeah. when they went out and got their hands dirty and did something that they liked. And, and, uh, that, that part of it's been really fun, but, you know, we are definitely in the get rich slow business, yeah. uh, which is, which is interesting, but it's fun to watch. 11 years later, I've got clients that we've kind of gone full circle, you know, with them. And, you know, I've seen, you know, 
teenagers turn into 20 somethings and now they're our client and, and that, that stuff, uh, is great. And I think it's like any business. If you, you really value your customer, uh, you're going to do well. Yeah. Let's, let's, let's end on that. Um, kind of extend that a second. And that is, that is one thing we talked about earlier. Y'all are entrepreneurs, y'all are business owners, but you are the majority of the true North kind of clientele are folks that are younger, maybe first or second generation of wealth. Um, they're usually entrepreneurs that have created it. Um, let's just end on kind of two things. There is um, the business owner that traditionally has most of their net worth tied up in their business. And so there's something to be said about, well, how do you kind of diversify that out of your business over time? But then I think the thing I would really like to finish on is the person that you know, maybe didn't do that. They've built this business over decades or years or sometimes, you know, their whole life and they sell and all the, and all of a sudden they have all this uh, capital. I think that's everybody, that's every entrepreneur's dream. Um, What do you tell those people when they come to you and they're like, Hey, business is done. We sold it. Check out the checking account. We don't have a clue what to do. And is it more common than you think these like really wealthy people that have no idea what to do once their wealth is actually liquid and in their checking account? Yeah, it is common. We were talking with somebody last week who uh, one of my partners who's 53, he's 10 years older than me, had a good buddy that that was in his network. And this guy hit a pretty big lick in his early 30s, like 20 years ago. And uh, he mentioned to my my partner last week or the week before that he had effectively been for the last 20 years trying to figure out what to do with himself. And he was just lost after that, after that first deal happened. And he's been trying to recreate that for 20 years and had a hard time. And so we focused a lot over the last couple of years on working on what we call pre-transaction planning or PTP that is just thinking about holistically, what am I going to do when I sell my company? And there's things that, you know, that are like easy money type stuff, like from a tax perspective, you know, how do I, how do I need to arrange it prior to getting an LOI and all that kind of stuff. But a lot of it is just around like, what is going to fulfill me now that what I've poured a hundred percent of my heart and soul into over the last five, 10, 40 years is gone. And, and not all of that stuff relates to relates to money. And in fact, money is kind of usually a a side item. And so that, that, that has been really interesting. Um, what I've loved about working with entrepreneurs in terms of like, okay, now we're going to start investing your money. Here's things we're thinking about in terms of asset classes is our client base, which is largely those people and largely first-generation entrepreneurs, they understand risk. And so if you understand risk, then then you know many of them can run circles around me in terms of what we're talking about investing <laughs> their money in. And and they 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 get it. And yeah. they're and every, you know they may fall at a different point on the spectrum in terms of how much risk they want to take now. But at the end of the day, what we're doing is way less risky than what they did before because they had all their eggs in one basket, but they, but they controlled it. And so, you know, there's, there's those, those dynamics that, that you got to think about, but it's, it's, um, it's a lot of fun. Everybody's different, but 
uh, certainly it's a big, big life change. Yeah. All right, man. We, uh, we went for almost 90 minutes. This was awesome. Thanks for having me. Everyone, it's Chris here again. Thank you so much for joining me on this journey. If you enjoyed the show, please follow the show on Apple, Spotify, or subscribe on YouTube. Thanks again, and I'll see you on the next episode. Chris Powers is the founder and chairman of Fort Capital LP. All opinions from Chris and guests of the Fort podcast are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Fort Capital LP. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for real estate or investment decisions. The Fort with Chris Powers is produced by Straight Up Podcasts.